a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the Pine Effect. So listen now as I talk with Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Malcolm Turnbull needs little introduction. Malcolm was the 29th Prime Minister of Australia from 2015 to 2018, uh, but he's also much more than that. He's a barrister, a writer, a grazier, a dot-com millionaire, a raconteur, a friend of the rich and famous across the world, but most importantly, he's my great friend. I've had the great pleasure of serving in his cabinet for three years as the Minister for Defence and Defence Industry, but also before that I sat next to him literally in the Tony Abbott cabinet for two years, and uh, we've been friends for a long time. Do you remember the first time we ever met, Malcolm? At the Constitutional Convention. That's 1998. A, that's a 21 years ago. And I was, of course, a pretty small player. I was the proxy of Peter Costello, which I was in many respects over the course of the first 10 years of my parliamentary career, and you were the head of the ARM. That's right, the Australian Republican Movement. Do you think that was a, a useful exercise to do the Constitutional Convention? Do you think it was part of a clever plan to stymie the Republic? Well, neither John Howard nor Nick Minchin, who organised the convention, had the Republic's best interest at heart. They're both devoted monarchists. Kim Beasley once said uh, to me, the, who's then leader of the Labor Party, of course, he said, uh, the, uh, the, the Republic is in the hands of its enemies. <laughs> and uh, and, he's, uh, and he, was, he was right there. But as to the question as why wasn't the, why didn't we win the referendum? I think the, the fundamental problem was this, you know, dispute difference between those who wanted to elect the, the president directly and those who wanted to have a president chosen in a bipartisan fashion by a supermajority of parliament. Of course, the wonderful thing about our democracy, Malcolm, is that it doesn't seem to matter about the debate. After the result, if people don't like it, they still run off and do their own thing, which we've experienced yeah, in yes. the last four years sure. in the, the government that you led as well. Yeah. So were you a good constitutional lawyer at university? Uh, did you do I, constitutional I was, yeah, law? I, of course I did, yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you remember who your um, well, my lecturer, lecturer was? My professor was Patrick Lane. Pat Lane. was Jim Crawford. Do you remember I, Jim Crawford, James I, I Crawford? Yes, I do. He went off, he's still on the International Court of Justice. Yeah. I have a disastrous constitutional law one story. Yes. I wrote, I chose to write my first constitutional law one essay about the dismissal, mm. for which I got 30%. And the lecturer took me aside afterwards and said, you have to understand in the Adelaide Uni Law School, you can't write about anything political, otherwise you'll never get more than 30%. I said, really? They said, yes. I said, I never did, never went near politics again, mm. which is not a good thing, actually. No. Well, I, well, my first argument about constitutional law 
politically was actually in the in the mid seventies, around the time I was still at law school. Some litigation I supported some litigation which was actually cooked up by a law lecturer that I had challenging the Electoral Act and arguing that the Constitution required that all electorates be roughly the same number of people. Right. Because there, because there was quite a, in those days, quite a degree of divergence, uh, di- divergence in the sizes of electorates, which of course, you know, catered for the... There's a huge divergence for, now. For the country areas. Mm. The legislation, the litigation was unsuccessful. It was based on uh, some American precedents. Because you know the divergence now between South Australia and Tasmania is about 120,000 to 60,000. Yeah, well, Tasmania, you, you have to live with because that's because the Constitution says seats. they've got to have five seats. So, yeah. yeah so, but, but generally, you'll find under the current it's legislation, it's, it's, they aim to be, you know, within three or four or five percent of about 100,000 electors. Mm. Well, that's where we got started 21 years ago. And uh, we've been good friends really ever since and fought similar battles ever since, which has mm. been good fun. You're very fond of uh, saying things like, you know, my father used to say, you don't have to rip your ear off in order no, to no, scratch no, no, it. No, there's a difference between scratching your ear and ripping it off, yes, <laughs> yes, which right. is basically an injunction against extreme activity. You know? <laughs> yeah. another, that's what uh, it means? That's Yeah, well, that's right. Yes, that's right. It's basically, uh, you know, you don't have, always have to overdo it. Yeah. I mean, Australians of your generation and really probably my generation use a lot of those kinds of sayings to describe things like flat out like a lizard drinking and so on, which are very hard to translate into other languages. Is that a very Australian way of behaving, do you think, and talking? Well, I think every, I think every language has got, every culture has got its, you know, different expressions, but some of the Australian ones are very colourful. Of course, I think we have uh, Barry McKenzie to thank yes. uh, for a lot of these because they were a lot of those exaggerated expressions, which Kevin Rudd used to take. I mean, this yeah, is the so thing. He used to pretend Kevin he was really Rudd, Australian. Kevin Rudd used to adopt some of those expressions like fair sucker the sauce bottle, mm. which only ever found their way into the language from a parody yeah. <laughs> or satire. Yes, well, so, that yeah. was part of his way of trying to say he was really a, a, a dinkum Australian. Yes, yeah, that's right. That's so right. obviously family's been a big part of your life. I mean, you talk about your father mm. and your mother, of course, mm. and, and your children and, and Lucy are quite yeah. a bit. I mean, it's quite a, it's a unit, really, that works to, that's worked together. Yeah. Your dad, of course, died when you were quite young. Yeah, he was killed in 1982 in uh, an aeroplane crash when he so was 56. So which part of your career did, you, did he get to see? Uh, well, I was 28 when he died. Oh, so so, the beginning of your legal career. Yeah, yeah. well, he'd actually, you know, he was alive when I first ran for pre-selection in Wentworth right. in 1981. He was alive when I was, I was a barrister in those days. Yeah. Was he an encourager of your political career? Oh, yes, very much so. He was an encourager of me and everything I did. Yeah, he was a, so was He was a dad. very enthusiastic father and supporter. And because my mother left us when I was quite young, I lived with him as you know, two guys living together, sort of really more of a big brother, little brother arrangement from um, when I was about nine to, I guess, when I was about 16 when he got remarried and uh, my stepmother, Judy, appeared on the scene. Is Judy still alive? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Where were you when you heard that he'd been killed in this air crash? I was at home, actually, and we had Lucy and I 
had come back from England. Uh, Alex, had, it was in November uh, 1982, Alex Assan had been born in August and uh, he was just a tiny little baby. And we were at a, we were having a sort of a family meeting with Lucy's parents at our little terrace house we had in uh, Woolloomooloo. Mm, must have been a terrible shock. Yeah, well, well, it was, I mean, it was bizarre because it was, you know, the, there were three things, you know, Dad used to give me lots of advice as fathers give their children, and uh, he used to say, don't smoke, don't ride motorbikes, and don't fly in single-engined aircraft. Yeah, very you know, sensible. You know, he, he was uh, with another, with, with five of them in uh, single-engined aircraft that crashed over the Barrington Tops, which is in uh, New South Wales, sort of between the Hunter Valley where he was living and Casino where the plane was meant to be going. Mm. So when you, uh, throughout your political career, you know, fighting to get ahead and, and mm. becoming the Prime Minister and then being the Prime Minister, you must have thought sometimes, I wonder what Dad would have thought about all this. Yeah, I did. I think about him all the time. And, uh, look, he would have been very, he would have been very proud. He, I'm, sure he, I'm sure his absence means I missed out on some very good advice because mm. uh, he had a, he was very, very good with people. He was very funny, very, um, had terrific empathy, very engaging and much, uh, he, he used to tell me not to be too heavy. He thought I was, uh, well. Uh, heavy you know, as in weighty? Well, well, heavy as in weight too. <laughs> yes, oh. that's right. He used to always encourage me to do some more exercise, but he thought, you know, he thought sometimes I took things too seriously. Mm. Well, you don't anymore though. I don't know. I mean, I think you've got you've got to aim to have fun. You've you were got, always you've having got, fun as a prime got, minister. Yeah, and, sure, we always had a lot of fun. A lot yeah. of fun, which people yeah. miss, of course, because the media only see most of the really unhappy parts about politics. Well, you, you can get you, you. The critical thing, I think, to stay sane in politics. There's a number of things to stay sane in politics. <laughs> I think one, you've got to enjoy it. You've got to make sure that what you're doing is fun. You've got to be able to see the ridiculous side of things, particularly of yourself and, you know, of politics. You've got to focus on what you can do and you've got to do sensible things like sleep and exercise. And and I think, you know, one of the big, like there's an interesting thing, Christopher, I'm interested in what you think about this, but I think some people like the politics of politics. Mm. You know, they, they love all the plotting and scheming and backstabbing and, you know, all the carryings on with the press gallery. They love all of that. And other people are more focused on what you actually do, you mm. know, delivering, you know, the you know, naval shipbuilding plan, mm. you know, the yep. defence industry plan, you know, the all of the, you know, the big reforms, Budget you know, surpluses. reform, yeah, yeah, you know, reforming school education, yeah. all of those things, that those difficult things that we got done. Now, from my point of view, the politics was something I had to do in order to get into a position to deliver on the policy outcomes and on, you know, on the good government. Um But for some people, it is an end in itself, as you know. You can't really do one without the other. No, that's right. But on the other hand, if you spend all your time politicking mm. and, you know, running a government in particular from headline to mm. headline, mm. Uh, which is what some prime ministers have done, literally just trying to win the daily media news battle every day, that that may actually result in you being in government for a long time. And there have been state governments, you could say that of. Sure. Uh, but, of course, you don't get anything done. I mean, Bob Carr is a classic example. Yeah, Bob, I was about the to one say thing, that. if you say to someone in the Labor Party, what was Bob Carr's biggest achievement, they would say, 
Bob won a lot of elections. Exactly. But what did he actually do? And the difficulty is if you're not actually doing things, if you're not actually reforming and investing and building, then everything else is changing around you and you res- and, and it means you're going backwards. I mean, it is, Believe you know, legacy. someone, it's like, you know, so I can't remember who said it, maybe it was Whitlam or someone, that government's like riding a bicycle. If you stop pedalling, you fall off. Yeah, well, the thing is, I mean, the... Pemberthy wrote a very, David Pemberthy wrote a very nice mm. column about me on my retirement, and in it he said, you know, a lot of people had confused Christopher's enthusiasm for politics mm. uh, for not actually wanting to be a person who changed things mm. and left a legacy, but in fact he understood that if you don't win, if you don't get ahead in politics, you can't actually do things. And there's been some wonderful people that we've known who've been really good at policy but simply couldn't even get pre-selected to start mm. with, let alone mm. get elected and become a cabinet minister but you can have great ideas on the back bench, mm. but if you don't actually get to sit in the cabinet... Or in opposition. Uh, exactly. Look at poor Anthony Albanese. By the time of the next election, he'll have been in government for six years and opposition for about 17. Well, look at Andrew Lee in the Labor Party. Yeah, so Andrew Lee's a professor of economics. Loves Super, policy. Very, very smart guy mm. on any view. Not only is he not in government, but because he's not part of the Labor Party factional I don't think he's stuff. even on the front bench He's not anymore. even on the front bench anymore. No. <laughs> you know, and uh, so that's a huge talent that's wasted. But you and I shared exactly the mm. same vision that we saw it wasn't just the projects that were important, but all the things that would spin off it. Correct. Because, you know, you, you will get from the submarine project, the frigates project, Yes, sure, that'll all be happening in South Australia and there'll be people Which just happens working. to be where the, the, the shipyard yeah, is. That's of course, right. it wasn't because I was from Adelaide. It's because no. once we'd made the decision to build them in Australia, that was where they were going it, to be built. It was absolutely <laughs> the right place. But, yes. but what will happen is that will you will see dozens and dozens of new Australian businesses mm. will start from happening. that. And you'll get And you'll get people who will... Go to work on the submarines. They'll learn some skills and they'll finally say, oh, well, look, this organisation is too big for me mm. or, you know, I haven't been promoted or I want I, I want to do my own thing. And they will go off and start their own business. And you've, you've I mean, Jim, our friend Jim Wally's a good mm. example of that. Nova. With Nova. But, but you will see there will be dozens of people like that. And so what you create then is an innovative ecosystem based around technology and defence industry provides the driver for that. So, Definitely. So it is, I mean, the... So uh, between, the, between the combat reconnaissance vehicles, mm. the hunter-class anti-submarine warfare frigates, the attack-class yep. submarines, the offshore patrol vessels, which are called the Arafura-class, yep. and the Pacific patrol boats, actually, yep. which are called the Guardian-class, it's $135 billion worth of industry being built here in Australia, mm. which wouldn't have happened, by the way, if the Turnbull government hadn't come into being. And that's where politics Mm. meant that you had policy outcomes that will completely transform our strategic industrial base, quite frankly, far beyond anybody's wildest dreams because they are discovering that the investments they need to make in science, technology, engineering and maths graduates Mm. means that they're transforming the kinds of skilled workforce we're going to have and they're going to keep needing to have jobs into the future, so they'll keep reinventing new projects for themselves to keep employed. And, you know, we bemoaned the end of the car industry, which I think was a shame, mm. but we have more than replaced it 
with the naval shipbuilding industry and defence industry more broadly. But it was a close-run thing, Malcolm. I mean, there was a, a, a very fair chance that those submarines would not be built in Australia. Well, the original, uh, the original intention of my predecessor was that they would be built in overseas, built in Japan. And that would have been an absolute fiasco from the point of view of creating jobs in Australia. I mean, that's a $50 billion project on its own, mm. which would have been enriching the economy of Japan, Germany or France. Um, and as you remember, it was quite a battle uh, at the time to make sure that those, those occurred in Australia. Yes. Well, uh, I, I think the part of the problem is that it's always easy to find you know, someone in Treasury or elsewhere who will say, if we build these ships overseas, they'll be built more cheaply. Sure. And the Australian shipbuilding industry has had many disappointments. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But the one thing that is absolutely clear is that unless you make a commitment to it, this is clear to me anyway, unless you make a commitment to it and you say, we are going to have continuous shipbuilding and submarine building in Australia, and that is one of the things we are going to do, unless you actually start, you'll never get to where you want to get to, which is to have a, an Australian sovereign shipbuilding, submarine building capability mm. that will be there for, you know, what, for, there for generations. And a country of our size and in our circumstances should have that sovereign capability. And, you know, just because you can't, you know, measure something with precision, this is to say all of the spin-off benefits, doesn't mean they don't exist, you know. The, so exactly. ultimately there's got to be some... You've, you've got well, other to, you've, economies have been doing it for centuries. Well, I mean, I mean correct. I mean, naval the, group the, uh, was created for 396 years ago. Mm. Well, the French have the French have always had a much stronger sense of dirigisme. Uh, yeah, but, which of course means a, a greater role for the state in the growth of industry and the development of national industries. Do you have a favourite day that you were Prime Minister or was every day a great day? Well, every day was a great day. I think, you know, the, the, the first day is always very exciting. But no, I had a... I, look, every day was great. I was really thrilled the day we finally passed the same-sex marriage legalisation. That was course. December that 2017. That was December 2017, yeah. Yes. That was, that was set, I think, the 7th of December. Yeah, it was about. a very long day for me because yeah. I stayed in the chamber all day yeah. from 9.30 till 8 o'clock. Well, that was very. That was a very long and complicated route to get there. And very I, long. And I complicated. was very proud <clears throat> of Australia at that moment. Uh, really proud of Australia because, you know, we had that uh, postal ballot, and it was which had it, to happen, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I think it worked out it worked for the out best. Really I know, well. and I know people were hurt by the debate, and they they found it tough. But you know what? you had a voluntary postal ballot, 80% of Australians chose to vote. Mm. What does that tell you about and it really commitment? surprised people what the yeah. outcome was so yeah. clear-cut. Yeah, well, and I think it was just under 63% voted, yes. So from the point of view of gay people, you know, if you were a young kid troubled about your sexual identity, not sure whether to, you know, whether it was to tell your parents or your friends... That plebiscite reinforced says nearly two thirds of Australians say, are saying to you, "We're cool, mm. we love you, 
And surprisingly, and the institution of marriage hasn't collapsed around oh, our ears. Well, it was. I mean, that that was that was. I, I gave a, a speech in 2012 about gay marriage, which I was, which I put a lot of effort into, and it was an interesting approach. Rather than approaching it from a rights point of view, you know, and saying equality and giving gay people the same rights as yeah. as uh, heterosexual people means they should be able to marry, that's that's a powerful. That's probably the most powerful argument. But what I did was I looked at the arguments against it, and they are bonkers. <laughs> I mean, the idea that my marriage to Lucy, you know, of nearly forty years, is threatened by the gay couple round the corner deciding to get married is like is laughable. It's well, absolutely thought, la- it's laughable. I thought it would be reinforced. Yeah, I mean, what well, I used to say to people, yeah. you know, because I'm a Catholic and you're a Catholic as well. Mm. I, some Catholics used, not many actually, not even my mother. My mother used to say, I can't understand why we're trying to stop people wanting to be married. Don't we want more marriage, not less marriage? Well, that's what David Cameron said. <laughs> da- David Cameron said, I support uh, legalising same-sex marriage not despite being a conservative but because I'm a conservative. Sure. Because he believed in, as, as we do, in commitment and the importance of commitment and, of course, what that does is, what it does is uh, reinforce that. So, but uh, you're, you're right, and it's it's worked out well. And uh, I thought and it was reinforcing. And then there were the dreadful people that said that why shouldn't gay couples be as unhappy as all the married heterosexual couples? Which is well, that's the sort of cynical. <laughs> that's a that's a cynical argument, calculated to get a laugh. I think so. Indeed. So Lucy and Carolyn and you and I, we've been very blessed with our. Marital choices. Well, you and I have been blessed. Well, whether whether right. Caroline and Lucy have been <laughs> blessed, the they would have, we'd have to get them on Indeed, your show. They might not feel the same way. Yeah, but, but we've both we, been very. We've fortunate. been very lucky, haven't we? Yes, yes. Well, I well, both of us got married very young, and I, um, I, I've decided that you know I wanted to marry Lucy pretty much, pretty much the, as soon as I met her. Mm. And uh, well, I'm in exactly I, I the same boat. Her, I asked her to marry me when she was still a teenager, and right. uh, late t- teens, I assume. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was. I think she was. Ni- she was 19 when we met. Thank we got married. We got married when she was 21. Not any revelations? But she, um, yes, yeah, she used to say, uh, "Let's wait till we grow up." But so I always say we we waited at least until she'd grown up. But I'm not sure whether I gr- had grown up. She's a real enthusiast. She is. She is. Mm. She's a. She's a dynamo. Full and of energy. And she's. You know. She's. She's got the job. Her dream job at the moment because she's chief commissioner of the Greater Sydney Commission, which is. So she's at the. You know, the chairman, if you like, of the body mm. that is the, oversees all of the strategic planning for all of Sydney for the whole Greater Metropolitan Area, and you know this is that's she is a, passionate urbanist, planning all of these. Things and you know integrating transport and social infrastructure, all of those things is is her great passion, and so she's just having a ball and so doing I went a great out job. With, um, I went out with Carol on our first date was between Christmas and New Year mm. in 1992, mm. and I thought at that dinner at Grimaldi's in Burnside Village, mm. I thought this is the girl I'm going to marry. Yeah, and I thought that's never happened to me before. I mean, I'd been out with people over the previous sort of six or seven years, but this is the, I sat there thinking, this is the girl I'm going to marry. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Does she, does Lucy, so Carolyn lets me have a lot of rope, as in she lets me run off and sort of do a whole lot of things that I think are very clever. But every now and then she yanks me back and says, 
you realise, of course, that you know people think that's absolutely mad, and you're mm. not, not going to do that. And I'd think, oh, okay, so because I know I really respect her judgment. Does does Lucy allow you just to to roam free as an intellectually and in policy sense, but every now and then say, no, Malcolm, that's a really bad idea. Well, I'd, I, I, or would you discuss? Yeah, absolutely no, she certainly. Everything? She we we discuss uh, we we discuss a lot. You know, we're we're very. You know, I've got a stronger sense of me and Lucy in many respects than I do of me as an That's individual. Mm. You know, we, we're very, very close pair. You know, we've been together for, for well, 40 years married next March and we were together for a few years before that. So, you know, we've been together for b- most of our lives uh, and from a very young age. So I, yeah, I look, I, Lucy's, a, Lucy's a very, Lucy is... Yeah, she's she's very thoughtful. Very, she's very sane and very grounded, uh, which is important. She has a phenomenal intellect. Um, you know, she doesn't practice law anymore. But for example, when we did the Spycatcher case together yep. back in the eighties, you know, the legal team was essentially me and Lucy. You know, there was an English solicitor, David Hooper, who was involved. But the, the you know the the trial was basically done by was done by me. Well, it was done by me and Lucy, and. Uh, we there was some very complicated case, a lot of spectacular evidence and spies and cross examination and everything. But there was one really obscure legal argument about the enforcement of foreign public laws in Australia, and Lucy did all of the research on that, wrote all that up. The trial judge paid scant attention to it, <laughs> quite correctly, focused on the facts. The Court of Appeal started to get interested in it and we got to the High Court. They looked at that and they said, right. That's it. That's what we're going to decide on and that's, wow. why, and that's why we won and that's why the spycatcher judgment in the High Court is very slender. That made you rather famous, the spycatcher trial. Yeah, it would, well, it was, yeah, it was the most, it was, it was a big news in Australia but it was literally page one news every day for you know, six, six or seven weeks in the UK. And then you wrote a book about it? I did. I wrote a book about the And you wrote a book about um, the, uh, the Constitutional Convention and the Republic debate? Yep. I wrote two books about the Republic. Yep. And then you are now writing a book, of course, about your prime ministership? Yep. I'm writing a memoir. It's a, sort a of memoir. An autobiography. As opposed mm. to some sort of turgid thing. And this morning I woke up and had scrambled eggs for breakfast kind of sort of no. diary, which is very tedious. No. I read a couple no. of those over the years and can't well, get di- quite Well, diaries I think can be good if they're edited. If they're fun. Yeah, yeah, yes. but you've got to, you know, the, and I think diaries are a valuable resource. But yes, that's right. But you're publishing a diary of all of the minutiae of your life. It might be interesting for you and your family, but it's going to be a bit dull for everyone else. Of course, you'd have read my first book. Uh, a letter to my children. Yes, I did actually. You. I did. I just just coming back to me now. No, it's good good work. <laughs> yeah, gripping. So obviously, this gives you a lot of confidence in a Lucy and um, uh, Alex and Daisy and big adventures. Was the adventure of the prime ministership your biggest adventure, or has it been fatherhood? Yeah. Oh no. I think. Well, I think. I mean, the, or they're so different. The most, re- the, in a way, the most responsible thing you ever do is become a parent. Mm, changes uh, everything. And just the joy of fatherhood it's indescribable you know the the thrill of your your own children watching them grow up and remaining and so we're so lucky we you know we are still very close friends and of course now we have the delight of four grandchildren beautiful but being prime minister of australia is it's a it's a great honor of course and a great privilege but it's also an enormous opportunity 
to get things done. And, you know, while I would have liked to have been Prime Minister for longer and I would have liked to have done more, I think I'm surprised that I got as much done as I did given the difficult circumstances, political circumstances we faced. Do you so, think we would have won the Prime Minister, the, the election, if you'd stayed as the Prime oh, Minister? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's not many people that doubt don't that. think doubt that, actually. No, I, I agree. No, I mean, I think the... the I mean, I know polls are out of fashion, but... The polls are a bit of disaster, but, but, you know, the... How do the pollsters keep getting paid? I don't know. Do you think there was an alternative to the way you and the rest of the Cabinet handled the post-Prime Minister taking over the Prime Ministership from Abbott? Now, looking back four years later, do you think that the way we handled that was the, was the right what, way? In what sense? Well, we... Decided we were going to get on with the job. Yeah. And that virtue would be its own reward. And as you pointed mm. out, we made policy decisions, we implemented mm. them. Mm. And there was always this bubbling away, as you describe it as an insurgency, people, in the, some people in the media, some people in the party room, a few people in the business community that was always undermining what we were trying to yeah. do. And then three years later, of course, we had that traumatic week where the Prime mm. Ministership changed again mm. and really the insurgents got the outcome that they wanted. I'm well, not sure they expected to win the election, by the way. Well, but they, they didn't, they got, they no, didn't no, get the outcome they well, wanted. They I mean, the they, would have, they didn't get the person they, would have, they wanted. They would have, uh, some of them would have, uh, quite a lot of them would have found Morrison even less palatable than me. But they ended up with Morrison. Yeah, well, they ended up with Morrison. And, That's right. uh, and then I so think... So they didn't get Dutton, which is what they wanted. Which is what they wanted. In terms of Abbott, you know, the question is, should I have put him into the Cabinet? And I think we all... We discussed know, it several times. Discussed, it was, there was... Nobody thought that was a good idea, except for a few... Except for him, obviously, a couple because of Because a lot of the people thought that the Cabinet was one of the best things about the Turnbull government. Well, it was actually... Look, <laughs> that it worked. The reality is I ran a... I was going to say a traditional cabinet. I ran what a traditional cabinet should be, but the tradition has not always been to have traditional cabinets in the sense that the ministers were given a lot of authority. We made decisions collectively. We almost, for them, almost invariably discussed them in confidence. Mm. And then when we made a decision, we announced it at time of our choosing. The trying to run the government of Australia from the prime minister's office, which is what Abbott certainly did and Rudd did. I've, I've nev never really quite understood how the Gillard government operated. But that doesn't work. And, of course, when you have constant briefing of things out to the media and you're sort of um, kind of uh, thinking aloud in terms of your policy development... Well, you can't. The problem you're... with that is you end up having to rule things out. I mean, as you know, some prime ministers... Uh, used to curry favour with the media by briefing out their own cabinet decisions in advance and briefing, sometimes briefing out cabinet decisions before they were made, which caused embarrassment on one occasion. But the, um, but what, I was firmly of the view that, as I said, confer in secret, consider every possible angle, get all the advice, kick ideas around, you know, no sacred cows should be left unslain, have an <laughs> open discussion and then make a decision and then announce it in the timing and the manner of your own choice. And, and I mean, the, the, the Gonski thing is a good example of that. I mean, when Burmo and I walked out, to do, were they, we were going to announce we were doing a press conference Simon to Birmingham. announce it, Simon Birmingham, 
so the media knew the education minister and the prime minister were about to make an announcement. So, so in the courtyard something about schools. No, it was actually in Sydney. Oh, in Sydney, and but there were three lecterns set up, and people saying what. What, who, what's the third lectern for? And then when David Gonski walked out, they were stunned. Now, suddenly we had the endorsement of, of David Gonski for this reform, which enabled us to get it through the Senate. So we not only had a fairer school funding model, but we also saved money. So it, was, it didn't cost us as much as Labor's promises. So, we, so it was both fiscally prudent, but also it meant that that money was spent consistently in accordance with need. And it got done. It got done. Well, that's the thing because, you know, it was not something, it wasn't a policy that you could change, uh, you know, by an executive or administrative decision. Because there's no point in being in power and not actually doing anything, mm. which, you know, we talked about earlier. Now, finally, I've always thought it was surprising after you were nicknamed Mr. Harborside Mansion. You do, of course, have a beautiful house mm. um, where I've had the opportunity to stay many times over the years because you're actually one of the prime ministers and cabinet ministers and figures who isn't really Mr. Harborside Mansion. I mean, you catch your own trains and ferries and mm. mix with the people and have caused me to mix with the people on trains out to the western suburbs of Sydney. I hadn't caught a train since I was about 11 until you um, made me hop on a train, not made me, invited me onto a train out to western Sydney. It's, um, does it surprise you that the media and others can position somebody in the way that you were positioned when quite clearly the evidence is to the contrary? I mean, I've seen you buying your own train tickets and ferry yeah. tickets and chatting on the ferry to from Kirribilli House across to your home with the punters on the ferries or on the trains without even a care in the world. Yeah, well, look, I'm, look it, it's frustrating. It, it's a it? very easy caricature, right? Mm. I mean, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I have a nice house in Sydney Harbour. So all of that is very easy to stereotype. A trite. caricature. But on the other hand, you're right, I'm, I'm a convivial person. I like people. One of the reasons I like getting public transport is not simply because I don't like being stuck in Sydney traffic. I get public transport everywhere mm. because I, I'm interested in people. I like talking to people, particularly new people. That are, you know, you learn something new from them. And I find that a huge part of my social interaction comes from catching public transport. I mean, just to, to give you an exact, just this morning, you know, just and this was walking to the ferry, I bumped into a chap and his wife, who was lives in Singapore, was in Australia for a few weeks. You know, we had a few friends in common. I had a chat to him. We've exchanged details. I'll introduce him to Alex, who lives in Singapore. Now, if I had got into my car and driven to the office, I would never have met him. Mm. And, 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 and that happens virtually every day. <laughs> You'll meet people. You meet old friends that you haven't seen for years. You'll meet new people, make new friends. Or sometimes it's just nice just to to look around you. So being engaged and being in the city and being a social person, I think is is very important. I, I honestly think that a lot of the sense of isolation, uh, which, you know, leads to depression and anxiety and all of those things, comes about because people don't get they don't get out enough. And if you if you if you get into a car, get in go to your garage, get in your car, drive to your office, get out of the car, go to your office and then do the reverse in the evening, who have you actually engaged with? Have you met anybody 
have you had an unplanned encounter with anybody? And the answer is no, mm. because well, everyone's very... either your family or your, or your work. So I think public transport has an enormous health benefit. And, and of course, the other thing is there's a practical health benefit, which is why New Yorkers are the healthiest people in America. Is that right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. No question. New York is actually the greenest city in America because it's it, because people drive less, they use less energy than people in, in, you know, in suburbia because they're in apartment buildings. But if you're a New Yorker and you get around on public transport, you're either walking, you may just do all, you, you might walk from A to B, or you walk to the subway, down the stairs, up the stairs, walk to the bus, mm. etc. Do you still have an apartment in New York? We do, yeah. We have oh, one lovely. on the Upper West Side. Yeah. I have to look forward to staying there one day. <laughs> sure, I'm sure you'd be a very, very welcome guest. Myself. Yes. You'll have forgotten this, but one day we were crack- catching the ferry mm. and I was talking to a, a woman on the on the ferry mm. and I said to her, you and Lucy were there, I said, you look very much like a friend of mine called Bill Ferris. And she said, I'm Bill Ferris's daughter. Do you remember that? I do remember that, yeah. <laughs> what a coincidence. You're a very personally engaging person. You talk to people very openly and honestly. You, mm. you for example, told me that I should have my turkey neck fixed. Do you remember that? Did I? I don't recall doing <laughs> you that. You did. I was, that, was um, a, that was a moment of... It that, was, that was, it that was, was a clarity a, That was in, for me. as my father would have said, that's ripping your ear off, not scratching it. I think I think I overdid it then, so I apologise <laughs> for did. it. You did, you said that to me. But you appreciated it, I did, did actually, and I've never thought of anything since. You said to me, um, uh, uh, you could have that fixed, you know. And I said, what? What fixed? See, I'm touching it now. You could have that fixed. And I said, what? And you said this, and then you held up... <laughs> I have no recollection of this at all. And I thought I could. And when I have enough money, when I leave politics... I think you dreamt it. No, when I leave politics, I'm going to have that turkey neck done. Hmm. And it'll be fixed, that'll be fixed. Well, it looks very nice. It's the Malcolm Turnbull turkey neck that has to go. I I have... Most people wouldn't have the confidence to tell somebody else that they should have plastic surgery. I think I I appeared in a dream. (laughs) (laughs) I told you. Well, on that note, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be with you. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.